I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. It was among the biggest cancer news stories of the year. A new study, the largest breast cancer treatment trial ever conducted, showed no benefit from chemotherapy for 70% of women with the most common type of breast cancer. As the Washington Post described, that means, quote, most patients who have an intermediate risk of cancer recurrence, a group that numbers 65,000 women a year in the United States, can avoid chemotherapy and its often debilitating side effects. The Taylor X trial, as it is known, is helping change everyday procedures in the everyday lives of patients around the world. And the lead author is our guest today. Dr. Joseph Sperano is professor at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He's vice chair at the ECOG Akron Cancer Research Group and has been a BCRF investigator since 2012. I talked with Dr. Sperano about the Taylor X trial and how it feels to have been part of such landmark work. I also asked him about what's next, about new work he's doing around breast cancer recurrence, specifically relapses that occur many years after original diagnosis. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Joseph Sperano. Dr. Sperano, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So you've had quite a last six months, to say the least. Um, any big <laughs> news or studies that maybe you've been associated with that you'd like to discuss? <laughs> anything anything sure. in the New York Times, for example? Um, sure. Well, yeah. Um, I, I guess my, my mention in the Times has been for good reasons, and uh, that surrounded... Um, the results, uh, release of the results of the long-awaited uh, Taylor X trial. Yes. And this was really the first precision medicine trial uh, and the largest precision medicine trial that's ever been done by the, uh, coordinated by the, and supported by the National Cancer Institute. Probably will be the largest one ever conducted, mm. um, where we screened about 10,000 women who had estrogen receptor positive HER2-negative, lymph node-negative breast cancer, which accounts for about half of all breast cancers in the U.S. and about 9% of all cancers in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, a, a cancer where we typically uh, recommend chemotherapy, adjuvant chemotherapy after potentially curative surgery to help reduce the risk of recurrence, but where the, on average, only about 3 to 5% of patients treated actually derive benefit. Uh, and our approach for the last probably 20 or so years has been to treat patients as a precaution um, in order to prevent the possibility of recurrence, even though we really couldn't identify who was more or less likely to, uh, to, to have benefit from therapy. So what we did was we took a new diagnostic test that became available uh, around 2004, 2005, called the Oncotype DX21 gene recurrence score. Yeah, it's a test that could be done on um, routinely processed and collected uh, tumor tissue that's typically stored 
uh, in the pathology lab uh, after it's removed, and where it's sent to a lab, um, and the um, genes are the RNA is extracted from the tumor, and a panel of 21 genes is evaluated. It's computed into what's called a recurrence score that uh, provides prognostic information. It um, it it provides information that identifies who's at greater or or lesser risk of recurrence uh, if treated with endocrine therapy um, alone. But also, more importantly, it identifies about 15 to 20% of patients who are the ones who are deriving the benefit from chemotherapy. Mm. And it sort of takes the guesswork out of, um, out of identifying uh, and, and selecting the patients who are most likely to benefit. So what we did in TaylorX was we took patients... Uh, who um, had, as I said, ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer, who met standard clinical criteria for recommending or at least considering chemotherapy, and then we assigned their treatment to um, their chemotherapy treatment based on the score, so that if the score was low, very low, we advised only endocrine therapy alone. Mm-hmm because we know, knew those patients had a very good prognosis with endocrine therapy alone, and they were unlikely to benefit from chemo. And for the patients whose score was very high, um, we recommended uh, chemotherapy and endocrine therapy for those patients because we know those patients had, rather than a 3 to 4% benefit, more like a 25% benefit from chemo. And for the remaining two-thirds of patients whose score was in the mid-range, we randomized those patients by chance to receive uh, chemoendocrine therapy, which we considered the standard arm versus endocrine therapy alone. And what we found was is that the two-thirds of patients who fell into this group um, who had a mid-range score, who had a, a risk of recurrence that was high enough to, to consider chemotherapy, um, that we found that, that they actually were not benefiting from chemotherapy. Uh, and that was a major finding that we reported at the 2018 ASCO meeting and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So the bottom line is, is that it's turned this test, which previously provided a clear direction uh, to only about a third of patients who had a very high or a very low score, um, into a binary test, a test that can tell you, yes, you benefit from chemotherapy, you're in the 15%, maybe 20% who benefit from chemotherapy, or no, you're in the 80 uh, to 85% of patients who definitely don't benefit from chemotherapy. It's just remarkable. I mean, it seems it's difficult to overstate, I would think, how massive of a change that is. And and kind of most specifically, how big of a change that is, not, not just, to, of course, in the approach and, and the care for patients, uh, of course, we'll, and we can talk about that, but also the very practical and immediate effect that that has on people's lives, on not you know on, on the folks who otherwise would have been undergoing chemotherapy, and now because of this you know because I guess previously everyone as you said um, as a, a preventative measure everyone was kind of assigned chemotherapy, and now that's no longer the case. And just, just to be part of something that's just a such a massive change in immediate life enjoyment, lifestyle, um, that's just got to feel remarkable. It, it does. And um, it's, it's a very gratifying uh, experience. Um, 
I'm particularly thankful to the 10,273 women who, yeah. who volunteered for the study because, yeah. you know, none of this would have been possible with, without them. Um, and I think many of them actually who participated, um, who, who were in the mid-range group, at least half of those women benefited, right? Because they, they would have otherwise received chemotherapy um, and uh, they didn't. And, and we found out now that they, they did just as well. So they actually, a large number of those patients directly benefited from participating in the trial, number one. Number two, they moved the field forward um, and have now, by virtue of the trial, we now have a higher level of evidence to make treatment recommendations with a greater degree of precision than we've ever had. And thirdly, they've... Um, push the field even forward beyond the the clinical scenario that the trial was designed for, that is no negative disease, because now people have developed, a, have a much higher comfort level with using this test and maybe even other tests to spare the use of chemotherapy in women who have who are at higher risk for, of recurrence because of positive axillary lymph nodes. Mm. Um, and in fact, at the recent San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, there was an entire session that was devoted to this. There was a, a point-counterpoint type of debate between, between two prominent um, breast medical oncologists about what they would do uh, in patients who had node-positive disease on the basis of a, um, information regarding not only the the clinical pathologic features, but also the um, uh, the the, the features uh, the the information provided by the by the recurrence score test, the 21 gene assay. So it's it's moved the field, I think, uh, forward, and it's happening at a good time because we actually now have other uh, treatments available that may help uh, prevent recurrence that are not chemotherapy. Mm. Uh, we've completed very large trials testing those agents, at least one very large trial called the PALIS trial, which is testing one of those agents called palpocyclib in early stage breast cancer. And we have other new drugs that we're now able to move into this space and test to determine whether or not they can help um, reduce the risk of recurrence in a way that chemotherapy ha has not been able to do. So a silly question. Um, so it was common practice, commonly understood, and I believe, please correct me if I'm wrong, it was around 2000 that the guidance came out for preventative measure to use chemotherapy. Do I have that date right, around 2000? Yes, there was an, uh, an expert panel convened yeah. by the National Institute of Health that yeah, recommended that, yeah. right, that all women, even if regardless of lymph node status, hormone receptor status, um, or, uh, or age be considered for adjuvant chemotherapy. So you've got an NIH-sponsored group that comes out with that type of finding, you know, very, very strong finding. What made you or others and, and the folks that you work with think, wait a second, maybe we ought to take a, maybe we ought to do a study, and not just a study, but, you know, the biggest of all time, and really look at that and question whether that recommendation is is what we actually should be recommending. What 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 made you question it? Did you what was your hypothesis? What kind of drove you towards this? Well, first of all, we knew at the time that probably sixty percent or more of patients who fell into this category were 
receiving adjuvant chemotherapy? Uh, why weren't more patients? Why, why wasn't a larger proportion of patients receiving? Well, probably because women who were, were older than 70 or who had significant medical problems um, or patients who were just declining therapy because of the uncertainty of its potential benefit. Um, but so even, even with those patients who were not receiving therapy for whatever reason, there was still a very large proportion of patients who fell in this group were receiving chemotherapy, possibly up to 80,000 women a year. Um, so that was point number one. Point num number two was we never really had the tools to be able to evaluate gene expression profiling or other types of molecular profiling in breast cancer. And those tools allowed us to um, develop assays that, that, that could do that. And then thirdly, we actually had the results of um, studies that showed that this, this assay, this test was not only prognostic, but it, it was predictive of benefit from chemotherapy if the score was above a certain level. And we have that information based not on the results of prospective clinical trials that were designed to test that because those trials take years to do. What we had was we had tumor tissue stored from trials that had been completed years ago where we had long-term follow-up in, in which patients were randomized to chemotherapy or not, and we were able to go back um, and study those samples um, and prospectively apply this new test. And when we did that, we were able to determine in, in, in a relatively short period of time um, that the test provided not only prognostic information, but also predictive information for chemotherapy mm. benefit. But then we were stuck with the fact that, um, yes, the test was provided useful information for maybe up to a third of patients who had a very high or very low score, but we really weren't sure uh, about the majority of patients who had a score that was in the, in the mid-range. Um, and we really also found key. out that yeah, yeah that was the key. And then, yeah, and I guess the other important point is when these tests are, are developed, they're sort of developed in, in a way that we study the test in the entire study population, right? The entire cohort of patients who were on that clinical trial. But that's not how clinicians use the test in practice. Mm. So they, they will selectively use the test. So, for example, for a patient who has a, a, a larger tumor, maybe more than a three centimeter tumor, um, uh, and, and someone who, who's younger, maybe under the age of 50, and who has a high grade, despite being estrogen and progesterone receptor positive, uh, that clinician may not order that test. Or if someone is older and has a tumor that's less than a centimeter and low grade, that clinician may not order the test. They may make a clinical decision without that. The test is ordered mainly in situations where the clinic, clinician is uncertain where they have a woman who is, you know, in maybe the early 50s who has a tumor between one and two centimeters and intermediate grade. And this was the most common scenario. This is the most common clinical scenario in TLRX. And this is one of the most common clinical scenarios in clinical practice. And this is what the trial, this is the population of patients for, for whom we have a very clear um, and convincing answer um, that, the, that the trial uh, addressed. 
Did your work in translational medicine, you're talking about it a little bit, I guess, in, in terms of, you know, the actual tests that are being ordered for um, patients, but, but, you know, that, that aspect of connecting research and actual medical practice with patients. Um, first of all, I just want to confirm that I have that right, that, that you do both. Um, and, and then what, if so, what role did that play? Or, and, and if you don't practice translational medicine, um, what role did feedback from the field, from patients play in how you approached uh, the, the, the research? Yes, translational medicine does uh, is defined as translating uh, information uh, techniques, uh, techniques, technology from the laboratory to the clinic, and certainly the development of the um, the twenty one gene recurrence score uh, leveraged technological advances that allowed one to extract RNA from routinely processed formalin fixed paraffin embedded tumor tissue. Um, so that was really a huge technological advancement. The other advancement was the the um, the discovery based research that identified the genes that were associated with recurrence um, through mm. what's called super, supervised analyses, meaning that the uh, researchers tested the association of specific patterns of gene expression with uh, a recurrence versus no recurrence and looked at the differences in gene expression between the two uh, and then developed a, an algorithm that integrated the information from these multiple multiple genes. Um, so yes, that's, that's an example of, of the translational research. In terms of the uh, input of patients and advocates, that was very important. We did in, in the design of the trial, there were uh, patient advocates involved uh, in the ecog um research group and, and other groups. One in particular, Mary Lou Smith, led an effort to do um, uh, to solicit feedback from 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 advocates, from patient advocates regarding the the trial, uh, its design, the question it was addressing, the methods by which it was trying to address it, and in addition, uh, she organized um, and obtained solicited feedback from from patients, ordinary patients who were not professional advocates, and that. That feedback was really very important in um, in not only helping design the trial and affirming what our design was, but it also helped in terms of developing patient education materials that can help explain to patients why we were doing the trial and why it was important for them to to volunteer for it. Yeah, the the, the feedback and the the communication back and forth between research and uh, you know, actual work with actual patients that, that occurs in a clinic um, is is always interesting to me. And I can't tell you the number of, um, you know, researchers that I've spoken with who just highlight that component, um, you know, as, as important in terms of their understanding, what they learn along the way, um, you know, seeing it and, and getting that, that immediate human patient level um, feedback uh, just ends up, it, it, it never ceases to um, amaze or impress me um, how, how important that is. I want to ask you about another objective to the study, um, which was to create a biorepository of tissue and blood 
um, and I, I, you mentioned this a bit, so that researchers can learn more about the patients in the low-risk groups um, who had a recurrence and in the high-risk groups who recurred um, despite uh, added chemotherapy. Um, and in fact, you've, you've ended up with quite a repository, haven't you? Yes, we have. And actually, this is where the funding from the BCRF was critical in terms of providing additional resources that we need to establish uh, needed to establish this biorepository. And we have, um, it's, it's been money well spent because of, of the fact that we have really long-term follow-up on a very large number of patients who are uniformly treated. And uh, we have plans to do more advanced molecular sequencing on, on uh, selected uh, tumor specimens from, from patients, including patients who relapsed and those who didn't relapse, so that we can... Um, get to another level of information uh, that may not be provided by the recurrence score that may further provide further insights with regard to prognosis, prediction, and also identifying potential therapeutic targets. Uh, in other words, identifying non-chemotherapy approaches that might help um, reduce the risk of recurrence or treat or even treat patients with more advanced disease. So that, that work is, is currently in process. How did you, a question about you? How how did you kind of get started in all of this in the first place? I mean, going way back and uh, growing up, was it always science and math for you? Uh, did you you know it, did you think about ever becoming a playwright or you know, a poet or anything like that, or were you always <laughs> uh, math and science? Uh, I was pretty much math and science with sort of a touch of humanity in, in terms of the fact that I was influenced very early on by um, a family member, my, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who, who uh, lived with us uh, in, a, in a typical um, first, second generation Italian-American home um, and uh, who developed breast cancer when I was very young and, and died of the disease. She probably, uh, my recollection of the events, although I was very young, is that she had a, a neglected breast cancer and presented with a very uh, locally advanced, advanced stage of disease. And I do have viv vivid memories of, um, you know, the priest coming into, into, the, into our home and giving last rites on a couple of occasions and her, um, you know, dealing with, with, with her illness. So that sort of provided the... Um, sparked my interest in um in in medicine and mm -hmm. and the and in general and in breast cancer in particular <clears throat> and what also interested me in, in oncology was uh, a second aspect of it was kind of the uh, the mystery behind it that at the time that I got into the field or certainly when I was growing up and learning about science and medicine a lot of it was very very mysterious we had very little insight into what caused cancer, what drove cancer, or even how to, to treat cancer. So that was the, the second critical point that, that drew me to this field. And the third critical point was that um, for many types of human illnesses, you, you can treat it, uh, you can manage it, uh, but you don't necessarily you can't necessarily cure it, such as, you know, hypertension or, or diabetes or heart disease. But uh, cancer is actually a disease that you can, in many forms of cancer, you can cure with 
either a combination of uh, local therapy like surgery radiation and sometimes with systemic therapies added or entirely with systemic therapy with certain you know blood blood disorders blood cancers for example so those are the three things that kind of drew me to it um you know the 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 stakes associated with the diagnosis and the human toll it can take the um the mystery that surrounded a lot of it and the challenge in and sort of uncovering those mysteries and deciphering um how to better treat um, uh, cancer, and then the opportunity to actually cure people of of, of an illness that's potentially um, life-threatening. How old were you when you were experiencing that with your grandmother? Uh, I was about the age of, of five, but, um, you know, it left a very... Um, very big impression on me, let's say. Um, but the uh, but I I also was sort of gravitated and inclined and interested in in science again because of what intrigued me about science was the mystery mm. of a lot of of science back then uh, especially the life sciences yeah hmm. well it's uh, it's I mean that's a remarkable mix of uh you know the personal but also i guess it just sounds like part of your dna what you were just talking about about uh curiosity uh, about the life sciences and and the mystery and um yeah very uh very interesting and, and always interesting how different different aspects of one's you know own personality and external events frequently can come together to to set a life course so the, the last uh, item that I kind of have for you and and what I think most of us could many of us maybe all of us could really learn from you um, is time management so I, I did a quick review of your work and you're involved and and have been involved in so many different types of uh, major research and major efforts I mean biomarkers of recurrence in early stage breast cancer improving treatment outcomes in breast cancer, developing and validating gene expression signatures in breast cancer, evaluating interaction between breast cancer and the micro environment. There, there are others, including developing more effective therapies for HIV-associated cancers. Um, so first, how do you find all the time? And secondly, do these all connect in some way that is easily understood by the rest of us? <laughs> Well, I guess the point, the real, the point of connection is the fact that at the end of the day or the beginning of the day or between the beginning and the end of the day, um, for the most part, I'm a clinician who treats patients. And most of the work that I do or really all of the work that I do, I'm motivated and become interested and involved with because it directly impacts the care of the patients that I care for. Um, uh, and so that really sort of guides me or directs me to become interested in certain areas. The second important point is that I certainly don't do this work alone. I, I surround myself with and interact with many, many, many talented people, and I try and learn as much as I can from them and um, also look for opportunities to apply what I think is the best work to the care of my patients. And, um, and, and then thirdly, some of the, 
uh, the eclectic nature of the, of the work that I'm involved with, such as the HIV-associated cancers, dates back to things that I was interested in because I commonly saw them in practice. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, in, in the institution that I practiced in, and in the area of New York City that I practice in, HIV-associated cancers were very common and rapidly lethal. Um, and the prognosis associated with them has um, improved very much in part because of improved therapies directed against HIV, but also improved anti-cancer therapies. Um, so that sort of, um, I think, may explain some of the the eclectic nature of some of the stuff that I've been involved with. And Dr. Sperano, there's work that you are currently doing, uh, funded by BCRF. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, this is really important work that I'm, that I'm really excited about. It, it actually started about five years ago when it became uh, recognized, more and more recognized, uh, that half of all recurrences of estrogen receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer, the most common breast cancer subtype, occurs not within the first five years of diagnosis, but after five years. And this is a major problem. And it, I became more aware of it as I became a more experienced clinician and had patients in my practice for long periods of time. And, and seeing, you know, women have a recurrence of their disease five, 10, 15, 20, even 30 years after the, their, their diagnosis. And we really had no clue as to why these women were relapsing this late and what we can do to prevent these relapses. So I saw an opportunity to um, study this by uh, evaluating women and offering women the opportunity to donate blood specimens who we had already, a woman who had already participated in other clinical trials where different um, treatments were tested and, and asked them would they participate in another clinical trial because we were following them anyway we knew what treatment they had. We already had um, their tumor specimens and their blood specimens at the time of their diagnosis. And we asked them to provide additional blood specimens. And we created what we call a late relapse biospecimen bank. So right now we have over, um, it may be close to 20,000 blood uh, specimens in, those, in, in that bank um, so that we can study and apply some of the newest technologies like the ability to detect uh, tumor DNA in the blood, the ability to detect uh, circulating tumor cells in the blood, um, so we can evaluate tumor-associated factors associated with recurrence, and also host-associated factors, uh, because we do know that there are factors in the host, uh, in the patient, that can help, that may be uh, assisting in, in driving the risk of recurrence. So one of the first results that we had from that effort was a study where we looked for the presence of circulating tumor cells uh, in women um, who were between four and a half and seven and a half years after diagnosis, um, clinically cancer-free, no evidence of recurrence by history and physical. And we found that about 5% of those women who had estrogen receptor positive HER2 negative disease had actually had tumor cells circulating in their blood. And we found that those women who had detectable uh, what we call CTCs had about a 13-fold higher risk of recurrence. Mm. And that um, for those who, for the 5% of those who were CTC positive, they had about a 30% risk 
of having a recurrence in, by two years. Um, whereas if they were CTC negative, they had a 97% chance of being cancer free at two years. So what we're doing now is we're in the process of um, designing a very large trial, a Taylor-X-like trial really, where we, we will um, evaluate women who are five or more years after diagnosis, um, perform a CTC type test on them, um, and then to select those women and then test a, a newer treatment like a CDK4-6 inhibitor to see if we can prevent um, a recurrence from, from ever happening. Um, the timing is, is actually right for this because the FDA has recently now recognized what's called metastasis-free survival as an endpoint that can support the use of uh, approval of, of drugs for this indication. Mm. And the FDA just approved two drugs uh, in men with prostate cancer in a very similar situation. Men who had local treatment for prostate cancer, local treatment meaning either surgery and or radiation, who have a rising PSA, but who have no evidence of cancer recurrence by standard imaging, CAT scans or bone scans. And uh, there have been two randomized trials showing that men who were treated with um, anti-endogenic therapy that uh, can prevent the development of recurrence. So we think we can apply the same model in breast cancer. Um, and uh, the N NCI will be um, hosting a meeting in the spring of 2019 to discuss and plan a trial um, that will be, uh, that will have this as the foundation, that will have this as the framework for trying to prevent late recurrence. So I think this is the next frontier mm. of trying to prevent um, uh, uh, recurrence of breast cancer. And the future that I see is that we'll be able to use these more sophisticated markers to detect what's called minimal residual disease, MRD, and identify who's really at risk of recurrence and then tailor our treatments to prevent that risk. Because right now, uh, there's really no surveillance that's recommended in this in this setting. Conventional blood tests or tumor markers are not recommended, scans are not recommended, and we need better ways to monitor people who are at highest risk of recurrence and intervene before that recurrence actually occurs. Wow. And I assume this will help identify which patients are most likely to benefit then from specific therapies. Is that right? That's the hope. There, there are now tests, for example, there are Circulating uh, tests for circulating tumor DNA that can detect what, what are mutations in what's called the ESR1 or the estrogen receptor gene. And those mutations identify tumors that are more sensitive to specific drugs. Um, so yes, some of the technology that's uh, uh, evolving will allow us to identify not only who's at higher risk, but what drugs they may be more or less likely to respond to. Dr. Sperano, thank you. Thank you for the conversation, and uh, thank you uh, for the work that you do. Thank you. It's been my pleasure speaking with you. That was my conversation with Dr. Joseph Sperano. My thanks to Dr. Sperano for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.